Jamie Duggett, the assistant pastor here, and it's my pleasure to bring you God's Word this morning. Uh, our last sermon in the book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. So let's play, pay attention to the reading of God's Word. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. One of my favorite biology electives that I took in college was a class called Plants, Fungi, and Symbiosis. And plants are fun, but it was really the fungi that were my favorite. By the way, sorry, this will be a STEM illustration, not a sports illustration this morning, but I know there's at least a couple of you out there who love fungi as much as I do. Um, that's like, you know, a fungus is like a mushroom, that sort of thing. And there's a lot of things that's fascinating about them. Sometimes they're unicellular, sometimes they're multicellular, sometimes they reproduce on their own or with other fungi, depending on how they feel that morning. But I think what's most interesting about them is how they eat. Now, if you have taken biology class, you know that fungi are a whole kingdom. They seem like plants, but they're not. A mushroom has more in common with you than it does with the grass growing in your backyard. Now that grass, those plants, they can just feed off the sun and a little bit of carbon dioxide and water, some nitrogen from the soil, they're good to go. On the other hand, an animal runs around everywhere looking for its food, whether that's vegetables or meat. Um, but most fungi are what are called saprophytes. That means they eat dead stuff. They grow their little tentacles all the way through the soil and build big networks and anything dies and goes back into the soil, they're there to decompose it. And it's a good thing too. It's crucial to our ecosystem that these fungi are returning all of those nutrients back into uh, material that can be used by plants and then animals. One of the truths you begin to understand more as you study fungi is that everything living is in a process of corruption. We all get sick, eventually we die, and our bodies decompose. I know it's, not, it's a kind of grim thought, um, but it's partly where we're going in this passage today because Paul uses the word incorruptible, which describes the opposite of that. What would it mean for something to be incorruptible? It would be very different than a lot of how the ecosystem we see in the world works. Well, we're going to see more about that. As I said, we're at the conclusion of Paul's letter, and so this is our last sermon on Ephesians. So this will be a chance to sum up and reflect on everything we've learned over the past, I guess it's been seven months now. We started this back in September. Um, and we'll see that Paul actually does slip at least one new idea into his final blessing as well. So we'll see that as well. I just have two points this morning. Point number one, Paul sends Tychicus to encourage the Ephesians. And point number two, Paul blesses the Ephesians with incorruptible love. Those will be our two points. 
So, first point. Paul is sending Tychicus to encourage the Ephesians. Uh, In verse 21, Paul introduces Tychicus. We have other information about Tychicus from the Bible. Acts 20 tells us that Tychicus was an Asian, which at that point meant that you were from the Roman province of Asia, which would be Western Turkey today. Um, Ephesus was in Asia, so Tychicus would have been local to the area. Uh, Acts says that uh, Tychicus joined Paul in Greece, and he does have a good Greek name. Tychicus means lucky. Um, Kind of a fun name. You know, get baby name suggestions, Tychicus. You don't hear that one very often. But he's a good Greek name, so he's probably at least culturally Greek. And he meets Paul in Greece and joins him on his third missionary journey, which means he would have gone with Paul all the way back through Ephesus to come back to Jerusalem, been with Paul when he was arrested, and then traveled with him all the way to Rome. And it seems stayed with Paul and served him during his imprisonment. No wonder that Paul calls Tychicus a beloved brother. Paul seems to have sent Tychicus on many missions. We're not really sure how many, Um, but uh, we do know that Tychicus also carried the letter to the Colossians. Actually, he may have brought Colossians on the same trip that he came uh, with Ephesians, because those two towns are not very far away from each other. Paul also calls Tychicus a faithful minister, which seems to mean that Tychicus was something like a pastor. In Titus, Paul tells Titus that he might send Tychicus to relieve him so that uh, Titus can come to Paul and Tychicus will take over the work. So it seems that much like Titus or Timothy, uh, Tychicus was sometimes given this job of sort of being a traveling minister uh, who would go to different regions and help supervise church planting as a representative of Paul. You know, I know we can kind of quickly pass over these sorts of parts at the end of Paul's letter sometimes. Um, All these different names, maybe it's a little bit like the Old Testament genealogies and you don't know who these people are. But actually, I think they're a great reminder that Paul's letter writing was a team project. Um, First of all, eight out of Paul's 13 letters mention co-authors. I don't know if we think about that in my much. We think of them as like Paul's letters, but there's somebody else listed as an author eight out of 13 times. That's most of them. Then beyond these co-authors, if you get to the end of the letters, there's often a bunch of friends of that destination congregation who throw in their greetings as well. Kind of like, you know, when we have a birthday card at the office and everybody signs it. Um, You can find that at the end of his letters. There would also have been a a professional scribe who would have helped with the technical aspects of writing and would have actually done most of the writing themselves. And at the end of Romans, the scribe actually says, this is Tertius. Hi, guys. Hope you're doing good, basically. Uh, And then there would have been somebody like Tychicus. And Tychicus' job would be to carry the letter, the letter delivery guy. Only this was an important job. He wouldn't have just delivered the letter. He would have helped explain it. This is an important job in the ancient world. The Roman philosopher Cicero apologizes for being late in sending a letter because he couldn't find a trustworthy person to carry it. In another letter, he assumes that his pen pal will have gone over the letter point by point with the person carrying it so that he can explain it to Cicero. Uh, in the early church letter, we know his first Clement, which would have been sent a couple, a few decades after Ephesians, 
um, we hear, we have also sent trustworthy and prudent men who from youth to old age have lived blameless lives among us who will be witnesses between you and us. So this was an important job. Tychicus probably went over the letter carefully with Paul and uh, that way he'd be able to explain it to the Ephesian congregation. Kind of makes me wish we had Tychicus's commentary as we were working through some of these passages. And from our passage, it's clear that uh, Tychicus was also going to fill in the church in Ephesus about everything else that was happening with Paul. Paul is very clear about why he sent Tychicus. You could even say he emphasizes it. He says, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. And then he says again, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. As we saw last week, Paul is going through a hard time. He's been unjustly imprisoned. And yet, he thinks that the things God's doing through his imprisonment are super encouraging. Uh, he's been able to be a witness to Jesus and spread the gospel. He's just asked them to pray for him in his imprisonment so that he'd know how to talk the right way. But now he wants them to be encouraged by all the things that have already happened. You know, reading these verses, I couldn't help but feel that Tychicus is almost described a little bit like the Holy Spirit here. You know, Paul uh, sends him, and this word for encouragement is the verb that from the word paraclete, the word for the Holy Spirit. John uses like encourager or comforter or something like that. Um, so, you know, just as the Father sends the Holy Spirit to give us knowledge that it would encourage us, Paul sends Tychicus to give the Ephesians knowledge that will encourage them. I wonder if Paul used this language because he expects the Holy Spirit to be working through Tychicus. You know, just as he said in the letter, the Holy Spirit's working through all Christians. I think in Tychicus we see one thread of this grand tapestry Paul's been describing in the book, that, that the Holy Spirit is working through each diverse individual in the church in a way that builds up the whole body. Paul's putting it into action and sending Tychicus to encourage them. Let's stop and apply this point for a second. Um, let's notice the expectation here that Christians are going to be sharing about their lives in a way that's encouraging. Um, Paul's just sent them a bunch of theology, including practical advice, but then there's also this personal dynamic that Paul wants them to know specifically how God's working in his life so that they can be encouraged by it. I wonder how much we think about that in our own relationship with other Christians. Um, I think uh, we, may, we, we may not share our lives at all, or we may only share things that are difficult or when we need support. And those are all, that's an important thing for the church to do. And uh, we hope that uh, we'll all be comfortable sharing the difficult things in our lives with each other and receiving support. But when God does something exciting and shows his power and grace, that's also a great opportunity to build each other up, to share one-on-one uh, -on -one or uh, in home groups about what's happening, uh, about what God is doing. Now, in my family, we have a word for this. We call it an Ebenezer, uh, remembering something God's done for us in the past. You know, it's something you could do is say Thanksgiving. What, what is something over the past year where God, you've really seen God's goodness and you can share with everybody else. Maybe that's something to think about over lunch today. Uh, what are things 
that God's been doing for you that you can share with others there that can encourage them. Uh, Clearly, this is part of Paul's relationship with these believers. So that's my first point. Paul sends Tychicus to encourage them. Second point, Paul blesses the Ephesians in the last two verses. He says, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I wonder if any of that sounds familiar to you, because I'm sure you can remember the sermons all the way back in September, of course. This is an expanded form of the blessing that we saw all the way back in chapter 1, verse 2. Paul started the book by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul takes that and then he adds some extra stuff. Back when Ryan preached on that blessing, we saw that it was, uh, that what Paul does is he takes a couple of standard greetings of the time and he sort of fills them with theological meaning. So peace is the first word, and peace was just the Jewish way of saying hello. Shalom, shalom lecha, hello. When you said peace to you, to somebody, you were wishing upon that person not just an absence of war or conflict, but a sort of wholeness of of well-being in their life. But Paul has now filled this wish with gospel meaning. In chapter 2, he said that Christ himself is our peace. That Jesus in his flesh tore down the dividing wall. And that brought peace in two kinds of ways. For one thing, we used to be God's enemies. But now Jesus has made peace for us with God. And also there used to be enmity between Jew and Gentile. But now Jesus has brought peace. Later on, he exhorted his listeners to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and to wear the shoes of the gospel of peace. So, Christians are called to pursue peace. But what Paul says also makes it clear that peace is, first of all, a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit. So, here in this blessing, Paul is pointing them towards God's continued gift of peace. So if peace is the Jewish way to say hello, filled now with theological meaning, grace is based on the standard Gentile way of saying hello. Paul takes it and shifts it into a reminder of God's free goodness. And now that we're at the end of the letter, we've heard from Paul that we were predestined by grace, we were saved by grace, we were given a special measure of Christ's gift by grace. Every part of the Christian life from our election in eternity past, to our conversion, to the Spirit's ongoing work in and through us comes as a free gift, not based on what we've done. So Paul, again, as he's leaving them with this blessing, he points them to this continued grace they need to receive from God day by day. Paul also repeats from the opening blessing that all of this is from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us where the blessing comes from. And that's something that he's explored in the book too. Uh, At his ascension, Jesus became the source of God's fullness to us. As the Father filled Christ, so now he fills us by his Spirit together with the gifts he gives us so that the fullness of God dwells in the church. 
Everything we have in the Christian life comes from God the Father through and in the resurrected humanity of Jesus Christ. And actually, in the course of the letter, Paul explicitly affirms that every single blessing he puts in the blessing here at the end is connected to Jesus. He says that Christ Jesus is himself our peace in 2 verse 4. He says that the riches of God's grace are towards us in Christ Jesus in 2 7. He says our faith is in Christ in 1.13. And he says that our love is based on Jesus' prior love for us. So all these blessings come to us from God through Jesus. So that's the stuff that Paul's repeated from the opening here. But now with a view to everything he said leading up to it. But what's added? What is new here? And I'd argue that mainly it's love. Love is the emphasis that Paul adds here at the end. He blesses his hearers with love with faith and describes them as among those who love our Lord Jesus in incorruption. Paul said a lot about love in the letter as well. God's love is the reason why he saved us. Paul says that we were predestined in love, that we were made alive because of his love. As God has loved us, we are called to respond. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us. We are to bear with one another in love. In chapter 3, Paul says that we're to be rooted and grounded in love, and we're to grow from there into a deeper knowledge of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So we're both rooted in love and we're growing deeper into Christ's love. Two things to notice about what Paul says about love in this closing blessing, though. The first thing is that it should come with faith. Paul blesses them with love with faith. For Paul, faith is the engine of love. I really like what Paul says in Galatians 5 when he says the faith works itself out. It actualizes itself through love. Faith is just believing. It doesn't look at our works or what we have done. It looks at Jesus. But as we gaze at Jesus, we are transformed into his image. And as we understand more how he loved us, we come to love him and our neighbor more. The order is very, very important. What happens if we pursue love without faith? If we seek to just be good people but without any reference to Christ's work for us? Well, our goodness will become distorted. That might look like becoming self-righteous and unmerciful because we don't know what it means to be forgiven. Or we might fall back easily into selfishness and shrink back from love. Because we've forgotten that we were bought with a price, and we've forgotten the costly love Jesus gave us. Keeping Jesus' love in focus by faith helps us love in the right way. Elsewhere in the letter, Paul has talked about God's love for us. And he's also talked a lot about our love for other people. But here he focuses us in on our love for Jesus. Uh, that's because our growth in loving others can't be separated from our love for Jesus. As our faith is nourished by the Holy Spirit and grows stronger, we fall more and more deeply in love with Jesus. 
And this doesn't compete with love for others. Rather, to fall more deeply in love with Jesus is to come, resemble his, come to resemble his merciful love for others more deeply. So, love and faith have to go together. The second thing to notice about this blessing is that Paul says that this love is in incorruption. Our translation renders that as love incorruptible. Um, I think that the original Greek is a, a little bit more difficult. This is probably one of the things that, you know, we could have asked Tychicus to explain a little more. But I think it's, that is probably what it's saying, that we're, we're, the loving of Jesus is in incorruption or incorruptible in some way. I don't know if you've ever had like a writing teacher counsel you not to drop a completely new idea into the conclusion of your paper. If Paul had such a teacher, he completely ignored them here. Um, what are we to do with this? The last word in the letter in Greek, incorruption, is one we haven't seen anywhere in the whole letter up to this point. Well, incorruptible basically means imperishable. Uh, it's the opposite of what I was describing earlier, where earthly things rot and waste away. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You have a great time at the restaurant. Um, you can't quite finish all the food, but it's delicious. So you get it to go. And on the car ride home, you know, you're, you're full, but you're kind of enjoying imagining when you're going to be hungry again, and you're going to eat that food. But then, you know, life happens, and it ends up getting pushed to the back of the refrigerator, uh, and, and other, uh, the cares of the world <laughs> draw you away. But then at some point, you're like, maybe a few days to a week later, oh, wait, you know, I have my food from the restaurant in the fridge. And so you go and you open the fridge and you hunt through, you know, like the, uh, looking for your, and then you find it, there it is. And you open it and it's just like, there's a little small yellow polka dots all over it. Or, or maybe it doesn't smell quite as appetizing as it used to. And this is just, it's fundamental to our experience of life. You know, we, we love these things, but they don't last. You know, and so maybe we invest more in, in like, you know, a gold ring or jewelry. But we know that even that, even that can, they ha, can corrode and things can happen to it. Um, even something like our car, which is made of like metal and rubber, which are durable, it wears out over time. Uh, the, the, the transmission belt breaks. The tires need to be replaced. Everything that we have is in a constant process of slipping away into non-being. And so life sometimes feels like a race to, to stay ahead. That's part of our experience as mortal earthly creatures. The opposite of that is the incorruptible. And you know, Paul uses that word in 1 Timothy 1.17 to describe God. God is incorruptible. God's not like the leftovers that you put in the back of your fridge. He doesn't decay, and he, does, he cannot die. He's always fullness of life. But elsewhere, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the term to refer to the incorruptible resurrection body that Christ has put on, and which we will also put on on that final day. By persevering through death and being raised triumphant, 
Jesus brings incorruptibility to human nature so that one day we'll be able to live with God, a life without any death or decay. Through Christ, frail mortal humans can come to have a share in this incorruptibility. Another way to put this would be to say that the resurrection life we receive from Christ is incorruptible. In 2 Timothy 1.10, Paul says that Jesus has abolished death and shone the light of life and incorruptibility through the gospel. Now, usually, we think of incorruptibility as something we're waiting for and looking forward to, much like that passage from Peter that May read earlier, that we have this incorruptible inheritance that we'll receive one day. Certainly, that's true for our bodies. Our bodies are not incorruptible, even if we believe in Jesus. They're breaking down and presently wasting away, even as we're renewed inwardly. But we're looking forward to this incorruptible inheritance. We know that in the resurrection, on the last day when Jesus comes back, we'll receive incorruptible bodies. But here, in Ephesians, Paul says there's a sense in which we participate in that incorruptibility even now. How? In our love for Jesus. Okay, let's try to flesh that out a little bit. Remember that in 2.6, Paul said that we were raised and seated in heaven with Christ even now. Somehow, in a mysterious way, in our union with Christ, it, we are spiritually sitting in heaven with him right now. That's what Paul says. And so we experience the heavenly life even now on earth. This works the other way around as well. By his spirit, Paul says, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith as he strengthens us by his spirit in our inner being. So in some spiritual way, Jesus is with us now. Paul talks about that in chapter 3, and then he goes on to say that rooted and grounded in love, we can grow to know the love of Christ, which is beyond knowledge, and it's through this that we will be filled with the fullness of God. That, that filling language, it sounds so uh, mystical and mysterious, but when Paul kind of gives it content in Ephesians 3. It's love that he points to. It's through love that we're filled with the fullness of God. So to be united with Christ and be, to be filled with God, part of what that means is that we love. But why is this incorruptible? What's incorruptible about love? Well, maybe you remember what Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, that love is, is the greatest gift that God gives us. And why is love the greatest gift that God gives us? Because love never ends. You know, that's not even true about faith and hope, as important as those are if you, if you think about it. Because faith is looking forward to sight. One day we'll see Jesus when he returns and we won't need faith anymore because we'll have sight. And hope is also the substance of things not seen. And our hope will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back. As important as faith and hope are, therefore our time here on earth. But love will go on forever. Another way to look at it would be to say that God himself does not exercise faith or hope. Somebody who knows immediately everything that's going to happen and has the power to carry out his own will doesn't really have that position of dependence 
that is necessary to make faith and hope necessary. But God does love. In fact, God is love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, have loved each other from eternity past and will go on loving each other forever. And, you know, I think of so many other passages, but just at the moment, Proverbs 8, which describes uh, this relationship between the Lord and his wisdom, and this wisdom being a, Jesus, I, I would argue, and the relationship of love they have with each other then spills out in this delight in their creating the world. And it all flows out of this love relationship that they have. Thus, love is the most godlike of the Christian graces, the one in which we image the Trinity most closely and most gloriously. So that means that when we love Jesus and when we love our neighbor, we are practicing what we are going to be doing in the new creation forever. We're participating in the eternal, tasting of the world to come. The incorruptible life of God, which is given to the risen Christ, that same incorruptible resurrection life is being poured into us when we love. We don't yet have incorruptible bodies. All of us will one day die unless Jesus comes back first. But when we love, we are grasping something permanent and eternal with our inner life, a fountain of spiritual youth that rejuvenates and refreshes our inner being with the power of God. So, how do we apply that this morning? Well, let me ask you, where is loving Jesus in your list of priorities? And where is it on your to-do list of other good things that you may be doing? Perhaps trying to get rid of bad habits, develop good habits, maybe researching and understanding difficult doctrinal ideas, um, maybe... Uh, doing an excellent job at some project in your life, where does loving Jesus fit into that? You know, think about all the things that, that, that you're doing and desiring and wanting in life uh, out of a desire to be happy, even good things. What if you're missing the most important thing, the most permanent and lasting thing, what if the way to take steps to come closer to God and have a deeper experience of him is to meditate on who Jesus is and what he has done for us? And love for Jesus goes hand in hand with love for others. So we can make another application. What areas, what groups of people are you having a hard time with in life right now? Is that work and your coworkers? Is that school is that the other people at your kid's school? Is it your neighborhood? Maybe it's even here at church. That does happen sometimes. How might moving towards somebody else in love bring the fullness of God into that situation a little more? I'm not saying we have to discount all the other problems or all the other uh, conflict and debate, we might ha need to solve them. But are you doing the first thing first? The thing that is going to really matter eternally in all of your relationships to other people? Moving towards them in love. 
is there some concrete way to love another person that the Holy Spirit may be putting on your mind and heart even now that you could do? So that's a challenge from our passage for you this morning. But I don't just want to end the sermon there. And that's partially because what Paul's given us this morning in our scripture passage is not first and foremost a challenge, but a blessing. And that reminds us that these, thi- that these things, peace and grace, faith and love, they're all ultimately gifts of God. We are dependent every second for a fresh act of his spirit to give them to us anew. And maybe as you hear this sermon today, you're very aware of the ways that you fall short, of the ways that you haven't loved and lack love. Maybe you're even aware of ways that you've tried to love, but it doesn't seem to be working. And if that's you this morning, as Jack Miller would say, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, but you are more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the reason this is a blessing, because this is something that you need to receive from God by grace, and you never stop needing to receive it. At the end of the day, that's what makes grace incorruptible, because it comes from God in Christ. Because God is doing something incorruptible in our lives. It comes from God who's perfectly faithful with no shadow of turning. Who gives graciously and abundantly beyond all we can ever think or imagine. Whose steadfast love endures forever. And it comes through Christ. Through his obedience, death, and resurrection which have secured this incorruptible love for us through his Holy Spirit and poured it into our hearts. We love because he first loved us. So while the Holy Spirit may be convicting you of your sin this morning, and he may be instilling a hunger to grow in this love, and those are good things, the main thing he's saying in this passage is simply, receive this blessing and rest in the love of God. Let's do that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise you for your amazing love in Christ Jesus, that you're doing something in your church, you're doing something in us. It's all by grace and not because of our works, and so we thank you for it. And we pray that you would pour out these blessings that you've given us in your word all the more richly on us this this week, that uh, we might bless others with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.